Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number five. Uh, today, we continue to offer hopefully something new and then uh, a discovery from our archives. We are working as hard as we've ever worked, actually, to get the rest of 2023 in order. And while we're doing that, uh, we want to give you some new content and then maybe introduce a podcast from our archives that you may not have heard uh, that we hope you enjoy. Uh, and then, God willing, uh, the whole team will be back in September uh, for recording our regular podcast for the rest of the year. Uh, today, I wanted to devote uh, each week to talking about David Lynch's Twin Peaks. This week, we're going to talk about seasons one and two, which showed on ABC network television. Uh, and then each week we will talk about uh, the feature, the missing pieces, uh, season three, uh, the return, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're also including today Secret Movie Club Podcast 85, which we launched on December 17th, 2021. It's about a year and a half ago. Uh, and it was one of our first just long-form director of the year discussions. And this was about Rainer Werner Fassbender, um, one of my favorite directors, and editor, very, uh, he's a good friend, uh, but he's also cutting some of the most interesting things uh, around right now. Uh, Andrew Groves joined us because Andrew was the one who introduced me to Fassbender when I was uh, in my early 20s. This week, by the time you hear this tonight, which will be Friday, August 25th. We have writer-director James Newen in the house for a Q&A, and we are showing Birdemic, Shock and Terror, and Birdemic 3, Sea Eagle. But if you've not seen these cult films, do yourself a favor, take the night off. You will remember it the rest of your life. Tomorrow, uh, we are part of the Big Bad Film Festival. It's Saturday, August 26th at 7.30 at the Secret Movie Club Theater. We are showing the South Korean a uh, hit from 2010. Uh, it's funny, Birdemic and, and this movie are both from 2010, uh, but also now considered one of the greatest action movies uh, out of South Korea ever, The Man from Nowhere. So join us for that. Next week on Monday is our monthly uh, movie trivia night with comedian Kyle Ayers, who's on Conan and uh, all sorts of venues all around town. Kyle puts together a really fun movie a night, that uh, tri- trivia night that's part trivia and then part... How creative and funny can your answer be? Uh, Wednesday is our open mic short night, uh, monthly open mic short night. Uh, Please come. That's when filmmakers from around Southern California bring their shorts, including those who are part of our competition, which just basically means they made a short in the last two or three months on a theme. And it's a great night to, in the best sense of this word, network and form community. Uh, Next Thursday, uh, August 31st at 730. This is all at the Secret Movie Club uh, Theater, by the way. We are doing uh, the next chapter of our Reconsideration Cinema. That's where we show a movie that we'd like folks to reconsider. Uh, And it may have gotten a lukewarm or bad or overlooked reception when it came out. And we think with time, uh, time has proven it to be great, or we think it's great, and we'd like you to reconsider it. And next Thursday, we're showing the Coen Brothers 2016 Hail Caesar uh, movie comedy about a Hollywood studio fixer uh, who is named after a real Hollywood studio fixer, Eddie Mannix, which is kind of weird, in a great way, played by Josh Brolin. Uh, And then uh, basically two days in his life, or even I think it might just be a day in his life. Uh, And it's, it's, uh, we would just want you to reconsider it. It it actually is one of their warmest comedies, I think in some ways. 
it's like a serious man, one of their most revealing. If a serious man is about their family and their upbringing and, and sort of veiled autobiography, Hail Caesar is veiled autobiography in terms of their feelings, I think, about movies uh, and Hollywood and being movie makers. And I think is as much a Rosetta Stone in an interesting way. So we'd love to have you. Uh, as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Any questions you have, uh, comments, criticisms, we want it all. You can see our full lineup at uh, secretmovieclub.com. Just go to calendar and you can get tickets. Really the cheat code has always been just go to Eventbrite, Google Eventbrite Secret Movie Club, follow us there. Anytime we launch a new event, if you live in the Southern California area, as always, we really appreciate reviews. So if you like what you hear a review on Spotify or Apple podcasts or wherever helps us and uh, also Yelp Google reviews if you come uh, to our events okay there you go moving on so last week we talked about Twin Peaks in general I think or I did uh, this week I want to talk about seasons one and two that uh, showed on ABC in 1990 1991 the next pod will be about the feature and the missing pieces. The next pod will be about season three, part one through episode eight. And the final pod will be about season three through the end of season three. Lynch really looks at Twin Peaks The Return as a feature in 18 parts. And I do too. I, I consider Twin Peaks The Return the greatest movie of 2017. Uh, but So that's how we're going to lay this out. So we're, we're if you don't like Twin Peaks... Uh, I hope you'll give our pod a listen. Um, but let me let me get to it. I, I said during the secret series in one of the intros that the only thing greater than Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, the movie made in 1992, which is my personal favorite David Lynch movie and actually in my top 35 movies of all time, is Twin Peaks in its totality. But the phenomenon where there's a masterpiece that's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, but when you add certain episodes from the TV show Twin Peaks, it becomes an exponentially greater masterpiece. With Twin Peaks, uh, seasons one and two, which we just wrapped, there were eight episodes in season one, including the pilot, and there were 22 episodes in season two. Uh, and then that was it. Uh, ABC canceled the series because they forced Lynch and Frost to reveal who murdered Laura Palmer in episode seven of season two. And uh, Lynch fought it and fought it and fought it. Uh, and it's interesting. He said, and I'm, I'm <laughs> it's interesting when you hear someone who's really talented, who really understands how things work. And you initially are like, I don't know if that's true. And then <laughs> years later, you go, oh, I think they were right. And you just realize that really genius people and talented people understand things on a level you just don't understand. And that's another, like, you don't know what you don't know and you have to be humble. But Lynch clearly understood something I only understood in conversation with other audience members in finishing season two, which was that keeping the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer open allowed or infused every storyline in Twin Peaks with the possibility that it could be about the who murdered Laura Palmer. And I, I wish I could tell you that was a realization I came to, but an audience member, Jesse Percival, who's an incredibly talented filmmaker, has made some great shorts that are open mic short nights. He told me, and I was like, you're right. So this is him. This is his observation. But once they revealed who killed Laura Palmer, all the other storylines just felt like soap opera. Uh, and you knew that they didn't have anything to do with who killed Laura Palmer, and it took out 
a lot of the mystery and the magnetism of the series. And I think Lynch understood that, whether he understood it on a conscious level or an intuitive level, he understood it uh, creatively. And what's interesting is in season two, uh, once you get past the Lonely Souls episode, which is episode seven, there are two more episodes that are pretty damn good. Um, That's episodes eight, I think called Driving with a Dead Girl, and episode nine, and I that one, I'm trying to remember what that one was called, but those two episodes wrap up Leland Palmer's storyline, Laura's father, played by Ray Wise brilliantly. And by the end of episode nine, uh, you get this incredible scene with Leland in the Twin Peaks prison. And so I think that Twin Peaks season two is pretty interesting and consistent through episode nine. But then you get episodes 10 through 21. What was interesting is that Lynch himself kind of uh, prints the legend a little bit that he went off to do Wild at Heart. And when he came back, he was horrified at where season two went. Timeline chronologically, that actually doesn't appear to be exactly what happened because Wild at Heart was already at Cannes before season two premiered. However, it's probably true that season two, a lot of the storylines in the writer's room uh, came about and the wheels of the season two uh, machine were rolling probably as Lynch was editing Wild at Heart debuting Wild at Heart at Cannes, promoting Wild at Heart. So I have a feeling that like a lot of things, there's truth in both. But one of the things, and I think Lynch has been open about this uh, in, in interviews, because he, he's a, almost a shockingly honest guy. You know, network TV forces you, whether it's a half-hour sitcom or an hour-long uh, episodic, you got to get out 22 episodes in 10 months. And when you think about that, that means you've got to shoot 17 hours, which... You know, even if you're going two hours, that's eight feature films in 10 months. Uh, And in listening to a lot of interviews with people behind the scenes of Twin Peaks and the level of quality they tried to maintain, that was just no one slept. It was backbreaking. And my understanding is that Lynch didn't really, you know, he, he needs to fall in love with a project. He talks about this a lot. You've got to be in love with it for two or three years. I think it's great advice for any filmmaker or, or person. And there was just a whole bunch of things that I get the feeling I'm speaking now that he just wasn't in love with, but you needed if you were going to continue a network, a network TV series. And so I think he backed away from a lot of that. And these are all the storylines in the back half of, of season two that a lot of people who are Twin Peaks fans talk about. You know, James gets on his bike and gets involved with this woman who it's like a double indemnity riff and she's playing James and playing all the men in her life and she hangs out at a bar and, but this isn't even in Twin Peaks and it doesn't really relate back to anything in Twin Peaks. That's the example a lot of people give. I actually, that part of the season two, I do remember being like, what is going on here? But even more than that, there was this whole thing where people's hands were shaking and uh, they discover a cave and the cave is cave paintings, and the major Briggs implies they're aliens, and then they're like demonic forest spirits. You get this feeling in the back half of season two that they were working to find a mystery as interesting as who killed Laura Palmer. And what I think is interesting is Lynch probably intuitively knew 
There wasn't one that you can just come up with, you know, just to keep something going. And everyone else felt, no, no, you know, look, we, we struck gold with Laura Palmer. We'll strike gold with something even bigger, aliens, demonic spirits, <laughs> whatever. And I'm not, I want to be very careful. I'm, I'm not trying to be dismissive because I feel for everybody who had to do that. But the fact is that is when you get to the season finale of season two where Lynch comes back and he directs it, my understanding is that Lynch felt, look, maybe there's a way to reset the series and do a season three. And my understanding is that Lynch and Mark Frost, they really wanted to do a season three at least to tell a, a full story. Something that I think would was m- more achievable once you got to the cable TV era, the golden era of television, where uh, you could say, okay, we're going to tell this story across three or four seasons. But I, my understanding is that Lynch came back and said, no, you know, I love Twin Peaks. I love aspects of it. I want to try to salvage it and do a season three. And you can see where this is going. And what's weird is that he comes back, inherits a bunch of storylines. He, you know, it didn't really, didn't motivate him. I haven't even gotten to the whole weird <laughs> Catherine Martell, Pete Martell, her brother, Andrew Packard, faked his own death. Josie dies, like... Uh, Sheriff Harry Truman gets drunk and almost strangled. Like there's all this stuff in the back end. Billy Zane shows up and uh, Audrey loses her virginity to Billy Zane before he gets on a plane to Brazil. It's like a whole a lot of stuff. Oh man, I didn't even talk about Ben Horn, Audrey's dad. They suddenly disappearing into the fantasy of being a Confederate general in the Civil War. A lot of stuff in the back end of season two. But uh, David Lynch comes back And what's really interesting is he had a sense, probably he and Mark Frost, of what made Twin Peaks Twin Peaks. And in the season two finale called Beyond Life and Death, what is so fascinating to me when you watch it is David Lynch creates this weird something's off about the timeline, which is fascinating. I didn't notice it till the second time watching the series. But Bobby and Shelley are in the Double R Diner. The the German waitress comes in and she's laughing. And uh, they do the exact same dialogue, all of them, that they did in the pilot. Uh, but it's clearly the last episode of season two. And this begins Lynch and Frost's interesting. There's some kind of temporal inconsistency. And this, of course, is going to become almost the, the meta theme of season three. So that there's already this brilliant kind of unsettling, wait, I, I recognize that. Did they just redo the scene from the pilot? Then Lynch goes to the Red Room, which for the back end of season two had been the Black Lodge kind of thing. And uh, he re again recenters. Uh, he does all these things. Uh, he makes sure that Dale Cooper is an FBI agent again. He puts him back in his suit, gets him out of flannel. Uh, and he, Dale Cooper goes into the Black Lodge Red Room and there, in I consider episode seven of season two and episode 22 of season two, two of the greatest hours of TV ever made until season three. And we'll get to that later. But then who shows up in the Red Lodge? Oh, I'm sorry, the Black Lodge Red Room. What's 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 so fascinating is it's not all the storylines that you aliens or this, that, the giant, this, that, or the other, although the giant, I think, does show up. Uh, it's Bob. It's the man from another place. It's, and most significantly and importantly, Leland Palmer and Laura Palmer. And it's as if Lynch in that final season finale is saying, look, <laughs> in a way, here's the recipe. The, the, this is the dish that you guys all liked. Uh, and I remember when I saw that, and I was, uh, I think, 12 or 13. I was 91, so I was almost 13. 
13, no, almost 14. Sorry, it's 13. Um, I had never seen anything like that last season two finale. It's horrifying. Just like episode seven is horrifying. I still can't believe that it got past the censors. Uh, but as Lynch himself said, and I think it's a good note for all of us, if you do something uh, differently and in an interesting way, and it's not like explicitly violent or explicitly disturbing, you can you can get a lot of leeway. People let a lot go because they'll be like, "Wow, I, that was I don't want to touch this because it's it's art." And I think that may have been the the feeling that the censors had. They're like, uh, "I don't think we want to touch this. It's not just ultra violent." something artistic about this. Uh, the other thing about that finale is that amazing thing, and who knows whether it was luck or happenstance with season three, but Laura Palmer says, see you in 25 years, which is actually an explicit callback to uh, the European pilot from season one. And as we saw it in America, season one, episode three, Zen, How to Catch a Killer, uh, where it says 25 years later, um, in the pie, the European pilot, uh, in the Zen or how to catch a killer. It's just the introduction of the red room. I don't, I don't think they actually get into the 25 years later, but this was clearly something that was on Lynch's mind and whatever it means to Lynch. I'm glad he doesn't tell us cause we can all figure it out. But that to me is the equivalent of like a baseball player, a batter getting up to home base and pointing that he's going to hit a home run off of the league's greatest pitcher and then doing it. Because Lynch says, see you in 25 years, and then season three of Twin Peaks, or Twin Peaks The Return, happens 25 years later, uh, and, and basically uses that season two finale as a launching point. There's so many details about season one and season two. Uh, just a few other observations. I do think there's something fascinating about the fact that season one and season two were done for ABC. For And I don't know that that means anything. To be, I mean, ABC still exists, obviously. But uh, when I was a kid, uh, for anybody who's, who's in the generations younger than me, uh, there were really only four networks. I mean, there, were, there was already cable TV. There's already HBO and Showtime and Cinemax and all that. But the, really, when you turned on the TV, you were watching shows often from CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox. Those were those were the the. It's weird to say this, but in, in some ways, those were the Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, before those existed. You were going there first to see what they had going. But in that time, those networks were, you know, the the first audience that watched Twin Peaks, uh, it had something like 40 million people in the country watching it, which at the time was 25%, 30% of the entire country, no matter what what part. And I weirdly have come to, to think that that, in a weird way, may have been the greatest gift David Lynch was ever given. Because my what I've heard from people who say, they say the difference between David Lynch when he was doing the TV show and then when he did The Return was when he did The Return, he's very serious uh, and very focused, very intense. And we'll get to that later. And I, I think I have kind of a, a theory about why that might be. But when he was doing the TV show for ABC, there was a sense of fun and experimentation. And I think it may have been because Lynch wasn't taking it. I mean, I think he was taking it seriously. I want to say this right. But sometimes there's a freedom that comes when you're like, well, I'm going to do a commercial. I'm going to do a music video. I'm going to do TV, you know, and, and when you're smart, you don't waste a lot of time fighting things you can't fight. So you just go, look, <laughs> it's the network's money and I got to turn in a 45 minute story and, 
it, you know, I can't, I can't have bad words. I can't do this. I can't do that. So, you know, I'm going to embrace this challenge and I'm going to turn in something and do the best that I can with that. And I think that, that Twin Peaks being forged in network television, weirdly, and then also when Lynch probably grew disenchanted, again, he could come and be like, Craig, everything you said is totally wrong, has zilch to do with what actually happened. And I, I fear that he may, <laughs> that may be what he says to me, and he, you know, he would know, he and Mark Frost. But um, weirdly, I think that the training of seasons one and two is what laid the foundation for Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which came out in 92 after the series had wrapped on ABC, because Lynch was even further refocusing and recentering what Twin Peaks was by telling the story of the last week of Laura Palmer's life. I mean, like, this story is about Laura and Leland Palmer, Dale Cooper, Bob, uh, this weird sort of transcendent other world. Uh, And then... Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, episode seven is season two and episode 22 is season two. I think those become the foundation of Twin Peaks The Return, along with, and we'll get into this, a whole bunch of ideas that Lynch and Mark Frost were like, hey, if we never get to do anything again, (laughs) they're going in The Return. Uh, So I'm going to end by just saying that, you know, Twin Peaks seasons one and two were a legitimate cultural phenomenon. Again, 40 million people watched the pilot, Northwest Passage, from season one. And then 20 million people were watching the show, uh, 20, 10 to 20 million people, through uh, the reveal of Laura Palmer's killer. In contrast, or by contrast, Twin Peaks The Return, each episode got an initial audience of about 500,000 people. Again, no knock. I mean, you, you do that. If 500,000 people were going to see your movie— uh, which Twin Peaks The Return is considered, and they're all turning in 10 bucks, then your movie's making $5 million a, a, a week. So, you know, by that metric, uh, Twin Peaks The Return made $90 million. I, I know that's not really how it works, but uh, so the Showtime numbers are, are no disparagement of Twin Peaks The Return. But just to show you that in this day and age, with all the channels, 500,000 as an audience, that's sort of the eyeballs you're getting. That Twin Peaks was a David Lynch creation that somehow appealed to the whole country, that, that is fascinating to me. And I do think that ultimately, you know, and David Lynch still has movies to make. I mean, we've all been hearing about this project that we, we think is going to go when the strike is done uh, that no one will talk about. Uh, that he'll do. And that may end up being, <laughs> who knows what it's going to be. Maybe the greatest thing he ever does. I hope it's the greatest thing he's ever done. But as of the recording right here, August 2023, I consider Twin Peaks probably his masterwork in, in total. Uh, and look, this is a masterwork among masterworks. It's like saying my, you know, my favorite Fyodor Dostoevsky novel is Crime and Punishment when the guy wrote The Idiot and Brothers Karamazov and Notes from the Underground. I mean, you know, it, it is, you know, it's like saying my favorite Scorsese movie is Goodfellas when you've got Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and Raging Bull and Last Temptation of Christ and Silence and, you know, you get it. Twin Peaks feels like David Lynch's human comedy uh, that Balzac did of 90 novels. It feels like, you know, and I've said this a thousand times, so I'm just repeating myself, but it, it really is a kind of er, like a, a, a masterwork that he revisited again and again and again that is greater than the sum of its parts. And very few filmmakers get that. You know, most filmmakers get a movie that we all, you know, even the best of the best. 
uh, some filmmakers get a genre, uh, and and but very few filmmakers get this body of work around a concentrated theme and get to make what I think now would be something like, if I'm doing this right in my head, now about 49 hours. Uh, and so let's stop there. And that is seasons one and two. Next week, uh, join us. We're going to repost a podcast and I'll talk about uh, the feature film, which came out a year after Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which I is in my top personal 35 of all time. It's my favorite David Lynch movie. Uh, and also the missing pieces, everything he had to cut out. Right now, you're going to hear a repost. Uh, this was, our, I think, our first real director conversation uh, on the pod about a director of the year. Since uh, 2019, we've done a director of the year every year. 2019 was Kurosawa. 2020 was Kubrick. Then COVID hit. So we finished up Kubrick in 2021. And then 2021, our director was Fassbender. And uh, my friend, uh, or I'm his friend, uh, Andrew Groves, amazing editor. Look him up. Look up his work. He's doing amazing work all the time. Uh, Andrew is the one who introduced me to Fassbender. And so Andrew and I sat down around the holidays to have a wide-ranging conversation about a filmmaker. And this is different than our normal uh, pod. Uh, and this is one of my personal favorite pods, so I wanted to post that. All right, guys. Uh, have a great week. Uh, thank you, as always. And... Uh, I love you, family. So how you doing? How am I doing? Like, just generally? Is this... The sound check. Okay, this is the, just the sound check. I'm doing fine. <laughs> Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 85. Uh, today is a bit of a special podcast um, in, in a lot of ways. It's different from our normal format. Uh, today, we have special guest Andrew Groves. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing fine. Thank you. <laughs> and it's just Andrew and me. I'm Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. And we are talking about Rainer Werner Fassbender because... Uh, by the time you hear this, we'll have finished our 2021 Director of the Year season with Fassbender. Uh, two days prior to this being released, we'll have shown the last movie of the year, which is my personal favorite, In a Year of 13 Moons, um, which we, we may or may not get to today. Um, but it'll be the, the end of the season. And the reason that Andrew's on, uh, I will tell you in a moment. First, I want to tell you. Because uh, Andrew will never say it because he's just a good guy and super humble. And he's been my friend, if you can believe it, for 21 it's, years. Yeah, yeah, it is. We've been friends for over 20 <laughs> years. It's a long time. Uh, we both went to USC Film School. I met Andrew in the student relations office. What was that <laughs> office called? Student production office? Student production office. Yeah, yeah. SPO. Inspire, yeah. And somehow you were super nice to me despite somehow. it was like a crazed day. No, no. How are you? That was a highly stressful job, and you were one of the nice people, so that was easy. It's an honor because since then, Andrew uh, Groves, and you should look him up, is because he won't say anything because I'm going to brag about him, uh, is a very – he's editing constantly. Uh, in fact, uh, his new movie, uh, Mother Android, is coming out on Hulu December 22nd. Andrew also edited the feature Captive State. And uh, you probably know Andrew's work from Glee through the Hollywood series, through Feud. Um, so Andrew's work is, you know, he's one of the working professionals. And the reason he's on this show is Andrew's master's thesis which I still think is one of the most punk rock awesome things that ever happened, <laughs> was he came to me and he was like, look, 
I'm doing this. It's my master's thesis, but I'm shooting a feature. And I was like, what? He's like, and we're going to shoot it in 10 days. And I was like, what? And he's like, you want to do sound for it? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to do sound for it. So it's called Wait Means Never. And when I was shooting it, I think within the first or the second day, you were doing this very dynamic thing where every day you were adding things and it was making it fresh. And so I think, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but by the first, second, or third day, I was like, who are, like w- this is so fascinating because the movie uh, had was about these sort of inept kidnappers who kidnap an industrialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I noticed the politics and the themes. And so you were like, well, you know, I, I'm very influenced by Godard, very influenced by Fassbender. Godard I knew. Mm-hmm. Fassbender I'd only seen Marriage of Maria Braun as mm-hmm. an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And, and you were like, oh. And you, had, you did that thing that, that like happens in the universe where you really grabbed me. <laughs> and I can't remember exactly, but it was, I could just feel from the way you talked about Rainer Werner Fassbender. Mm-hmm. They were like, you have to watch these movies. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, and and I, I always try to remember what the first one was I saw. I want to tell you it was like Merchant of Four Seasons or The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kahn. Yeah. It was probably based on something you had said. Sure. And it was one of the few times in my life where from the first movie, I was like, clear the schedule. I'm not watching anybody else mm-hmm. for the next three weeks or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and we're going to get into that. So, so the reason that, that Andrew's on this show, aside from being a friend, is that he's the reason that this whole series happened. He is the reason that I really did deep dives into Godard and Fassbender. And those two filmmakers really changed me. I mean, I don't want to g- get into it hugely, but I, we'll talk about it later. But I'm, I, I, I just can't thank you enough for it. You know, I'm from Southern California. My mom lived in Orange County. My dad lived up here in L.A. Sure. And there, there are things that Godard and Fassbender get into that I think Southern California and American dudes, bros, don't, <laughs> you know, necessarily think about. Think about. And when I saw that cinema, sure. I was very humbled and very embarrassed. Um, and I, I, I'm eternally grateful to you for making me cognizant of the importance of those filmmakers. So we're going to get into that. Yeah. Um, before we dive into this conversation, uh, this week, by the time you hear this, uh, we are doing the wildly mainstream tonight, Marcel Carnet's Children of Paradise. On 35mm. That is a really, like, that's an all-timer. Next Saturday, we're doing our kitty matinee uh, at the Million Dollar Theater. We are doing Brad Bird's Iron Giant and the original Mary Poppins on 35mm. And in between, we're doing a magic show with magician Magical Katrina. And then uh, the following week, we are in our final week of the year, and we are going to be doing Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Christoph Kislowski's Decalogue. That is actually in my top 35 of all time. Um, that's an all-timer. For me, Andrew is talking about all-timers. Um, and uh, we're going to do four episodes on Tuesday. Each episode's about an hour. So Tuesday night will be the long one. Um, and we're going we're gonna to have wine, beer. We're going to take intermission. But they really do. I mean, it's weird to say. But other people might dispute. They really do fly by. Mm-hmm. They're all, like, fascinating. And if you get into it, um, it doesn't feel like – it doesn't even feel like an hour and a half. You just start wishing – God had had 20 commandments so that Kislowski <laughs> could have made 20 short films. But um, there are, there are 10, 10 commandments. So, and then uh, Wednesday and Thursday night are um, three hours, three hours. Our final show of the year is what we've always done. Uh, it is It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life on 35mm. Um, anyway, moving on. So let's get into it. So Andrew... Um, uh, 
I'm going to go to you. Uh, so we're here to talk uh, Fassbender, Rainer Werner Fassbender. And he was our director of 2021. Uh, and if uh, for anybody listening to this podcast, whenever, uh, you don't need to see him in the theater, although it was a delight. Just start renting him, start streaming him. We're recording this in 2021. A lot of his movies are available through Criterion and the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you can find them there. Uh, but let's, enough, let, let's just... Um, uh, I'm going to do a quick intro and throw it to you. So Rainer Werner Fassbender was born in 1945, although his mom lied and for years said he was born in 1946 so that he wouldn't have the taint of Nazi Germany on him. Mm-hmm. But he was born, I think, just at the tail end of the war to upper-middle-class parents uh, who soon divorced. Um, and his mom would end up being in many of his movies. He had a very fraught relationship with his mother. Um, he grew up in post-war Germany. His youth was the 50s and the 60s. Uh, in the 60s, he joined, and I want you to correct all this, but he, he got into theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did the anti-theater. Uh, he started an anti-theater group where many of his actors who would be with him for his entire career, he, he came up with doing plays. He famously would talk about that eventually um, he would see four movies a day at some point. He had sort of a fraught home life with his mom that he said didn't really even out, maybe ever, but not until he was an adult. And he, I, he had some issues with his mom and the men that she had in her life. So he would, sorry, and she had a boarding house of some kind so he would sort of ditch that go to the theater the, the cinema mm-hmm. and uh just fell in love and he said he watched four movies a day for uh, establishing a pace he wouldn't end till his early death anyway um through a host of uh circumstances he started directing very young i think 21 22 23 was when he was doing his first short films mm-hmm. 22 23 24 he directed his first movie love is colder than death um he famously had decided that he was going to die young he never he said in interviews and to many people i have no intention of seeing old age he kept true to his word he died at 37 in 1982 um but before that death of a barbiturate cocaine overdose um he made over 40 works uh for cinema and television and even that blistering pace doesn't really tell you that several of those works were eight to 15 hour TV miniseries, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, so really you could say 50 plus works if you're going by the rubric of 90 minute to two hour features at the same time, I think writing and directing several plays mm-hmm. uh, here and there. Uh, and I kept that pace up and produced a body of work that uh, hasn't been matched since him. He would probably be the last along with maybe Spielberg, um, to this day of people who've produced 40, 50, and maybe Woody Allen. Uh, I'm trying to think of other people, and Takashi Miike in Japan, who yeah. have produced 50-plus, 100-plus works. Um, and uh, his work defined the new German wave and German cinema. I think he's totally different from the other people that make up the new German wave. Mm-hmm. I have a bias on that. We're, I love him. He's one of my favorite directors of all time. Enough. Why do you love Rainer Werner Fass? <laughs> Um, I mean, I think so much of what you just said is like uh, the. I, I think the kind of legend around him and that hyper. Pro- it's not even hyper productivity. It's just like the, the kind of inhuman work rate uh, just becomes an object of fascination in itself. But I found I found that kind of over the years that the uh, that's uh, what used to be a big part of that kind of fascination about him and just that kind of inhuman uh, uh, productivity um, has kind of. F- not faded away, but just become less important to me in terms of, um, you know, watching the films themselves and kind of reflecting on that and thinking about the, you know, in, in some ways the gulf between his uh, personal life and, and the way in which he was able to um, com- 
communicate kind of artistically. Does this happen to you, um, which is, because this <clears throat> happened to me doing this series and watching all these movies over again, that central question was one of the questions I was never able to resolve. It, it just actually became more burning in my head, yeah. which was how was somebody of such chaotic personal life yeah. and self-destructive forces... Willf- willfully willfully chaotic as well. Yeah. Which we'll talk about. Yeah. So supernaturally disciplined mm-hmm. beyond almost any filmmaker I can think of yeah. and so clear up. That, I, I think when I was younger, the... Um you know the burning commitment of uh, not just the the level of productivity, but also his uh, political engagement. The you know that relentlessly critical um, uh, stance that he takes in all of the work was um, uh, was kind of first and foremost. And, and curiously, I, I found I found myself thinking, God, I don't, I don't think I've really kind of given him proper uh, credit for just like how technically beautiful mm. these films are, and just. Um, absolutely crystalline camera work and uh and an ability to stage and block scenes in a way that I, I just can't kind of wrap my head around like how did he figure that out you know how do you and that there was as you say simply a level of concentration and focus in terms of um uh the way in which he was with actors particularly in hearing actors talking about working with him he was very laconic in the way that he would deal with them you know if they asked if they asked him for things he'd be like why are you talking to me why are you asking me what your motivation is he was just like just stand over there say the line walk over there you know that he'd have these things mapped out um and that he was actually um in his head and essentially had a company of people that he trusted to be able to well, he trusted and also abused, abused and dis- <laughs> abused and despised in a uh, in a highly kind of um, sadomasochistic way. Um, that uh, yeah, that that for me, uh, the kind of prevalence of these incredibly complicated oneers through the oh, yeah. uh, the films as well, and some of that's of course working with, you know, he worked with three great. Um, Cinematographers, you know, in his time, uh, Dietrich Luhrmann for that first period. Then, I suppose, most famously, um, Ballhaus. Uh, Michael Ballhaus, and then my favorite cinematographer of all time. Yeah, and I just think it's funny thinking about that kind of level of productivity. So like, it was Fassbinder, of course, driving that, and and no one, you know, not every, not every director can kind of keep up that pace. But I do think that in order to, well, I think in order to make the kinds of films that he wanted to make about the things he wanted to make, he needed to be able to work very quickly because he was often responding to things that were happening in current affairs. You know, think of Germany in autumn and Third, Third Generation, generation you know, yeah. those things. The res- in a year of 13, 13 moons, in terms of the response to Armin Meyer's suicide, you know, being able to, um, to make these things very quickly was um, absolutely central to the whole kind of project. Uh, his whole artistic project. Uh, uh, what, I've, what I loved about this season that you've done here is that the first film you showed was Beware of a Holy Whore, which for me is just like, throw him in at the deep end. Well, that's a, <laughs> No, I love that, though. Truly love that. The, the, the weird thing about him uh, that we've touched on was that he famously uh, had... Just a really, he was he would alienate people, and and it, it may have been that he was, you know, he, he he had a rough relationship with his mom. 
I, I think he had an okay relationship with his dad, but a distant one, or was it not a, do you know? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. Yeah. The, but nevertheless, he seemed to be enacting something with, and he was an only child. Yep. And so with the people in his life, he was always like, possess, like possessive, but then he was also abusive. Mm-hmm. He would love them and want to build lives around them and then just totally blow it up. Mm-hmm. And there are all these crazy stories. And you see that in the movies, too. I mean, the movies are about these crazy codependent, yeah, uh, yeah. where's the power, you know, sure. relationship stuff. But I think the thing that blew me away about Kotzelmacher, you were talking a moment ago about how, um, you know, he came out of the 60s and 70s and maybe this was a period of experimentation and, and, and maybe a, a different time. And we were talking about his bisexuality, but Kotzelmacher early in his career, when he's very young, he's already calling himself out and his generation out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that criticism is valid to this day. In fact, I get furious about it. Now I'm not, I'm not in my twenties. I'm 44 now, but Kotzelmacher, you see all these young German couples who ostensibly pride themselves on maybe being hip, mm-hmm. not being Nazis like their parents. Mm-hmm. And then you watch them, and you're like, nothing's changed. Yeah. He seems to be saying that these people would become Nazis <laughs> at the <laughs> drop of a hat. Because <laughs> sure. a Greek immigrant comes in, yeah. and then they all get gossipy. They all get xenophobic. Yeah. They all displace their own driftless lives and problems mm-hmm. onto this sure. outsider. Yeah. And then beware of the holy horror. You know, we should, we should talk about that. It's one of my favorites. But <laughs> that literally is about the making of a movie he had just made yeah. with like most of the same people yeah. and it was Whitey, right? Yeah, yeah. It's about the making of yeah. Whitey and he just tears everybody a new a-hole including himself <laughs> about just what horrible people they are <laughs> and like, so I, I guess I, the, where I want to go to and I, I guess we'll just have to get into all of it. I want you to, I want you to cover it all. The, here's a guy who was bisexual. Here's a guy who was chaotic in his personal life and yet, um, also super clear-eyed about his shortcomings and the shortcomings of the people around him. How do you process all that, just in terms of his filmmaking and his brilliant filmmaking, on human issues, on LGBTQ issues, on an openness to everything, on being both critical, you were telling this beautiful story, critical of religion and understanding religion. I had no idea you were telling me he came from a Catholic Catholic, household. Yeah, Yeah, so take it where you will. And those two movies maybe as conduits to cover a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, I don't... um, I think, you know, we were talking about uh, that moment in uh, Petra von Kant uh, after she's had her meltdown with uh, her mother and her friend and daughter and, and just that, which for me is the most kind of beautiful scene in any of his films, this very quiet moment of grace between her and her mother you know where you know Petra is apologizing for how she's been and uh, her mother talking about how she, you know everyone needs comfort in life and that and her mother translates that as you know that telling Petra that she needs to find God whereas Petra says you know she's do, she doesn't really go for that but that we that people need to learn to love each other without making demands on each other and her mother saying you know that that's it's the same, you know, these are the same things, um, God and that idea. And um, so in terms of processing his, the, the chaos, well, I think, it, and also the, um, kind of laceratingly self-aware, I just feel like these films are And then these beating himself up about Agonizingly it. kind of emotional and, uh, and, and at times kind of autobiographical in a way that is uh, mesmerizing. I, I think, again, Petra von Kant as a, 
uh, I believe, uh, essentially a translation of his relationship with Gunter Kaufmann, who's one of his actors, um, mm. uh, as played, you know, Hannah Shigula playing that role, and then Ilm Hellman playing the role played in real life by Pierre Rabin, who is his composer. Um, you know, you just think, <laughs> like, watching this film, if you're Pierre Rabin or Gunter Kaufmann, it's like, what does it feel like to see your lives kind of put up like that? But I just feel... Did, did Fassbender have a relationship with Pierre Robin? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, while he was having an, uh, an, a relationship with Ilm Hellman. I mean, like, she would sleep on the floor while he and Pierre Robin were... You know what I mean? <laughs> but he slept with all of them, <laughs> apart from Hannah Shigula and Margaret Carstensen, I think. But um, the... Um, I just think that, I mean, in some ways, he is the test of the, um, you know, can you... Uh, can you accept the art while uh, not necessarily um, uh, approve, separate uh, the art from the yeah, artist? Yeah, from, from the artist. And uh, he made that very <coughs> difficult himself, of course, because it was all this, um, you know, one kind of roiling pot of um, activity over a very short period of time. It seemed like his life and the films were effectively inseparable. Um, you know, I feel when we're talking at the beginning about, you know, his productivity and things like that, I feel like when people first start talking about Fassbinder, whenever he's introduced as an, a filmmaker as an idea, it's always like, well, he was a holy terror in, in real life. He produced an unbelievable amount of films, and these films are all really brilliant. But I would, I would make a distinction, um, and, and this is getting to, to the heart of it, and, and I want to ask you again about, well, I'll come to that in a second, but, but I, I think there's a, a critical difference uh, between him and other raging narcissists mm. or other people who... And it's that he recognized his behavior oh, yeah, yeah. as being unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. And he would immediately put it into movies. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you said that he was raised Catholic because that, that act of beating yourself up... I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people have that. That's, sure. that, that transcends culture, but... But that's something I identify with, yeah. having been raised Catholic. Catholics just do it better, don't they? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but we do it. Uh, but 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 nevertheless, I mean, but and but it's also something that we feel. Look, and I'm not speaking for all Catholics. But, sure. um, the, and again, I don't. I think that's unright because I, you know Japanese do it in Japanese culture. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. this is something that transcends the the, the 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 critical difference is he recognized it was wrong. He would put it into movies, and he seemed to be constantly in dialogue mm-hmm. about it. Now, oh, yeah. I don't know that he ever transcended it. I'm sure he didn't. It seems like he was a holy terror to the end of his life to a certain extent. Sure. But it seems like he was, you know, there's that crazy story when he was with um, the actor who plays Ali. Can you just give me his name so I can say it? Right? Uh, El Hedi Ben Salam. El Hedi Ben Salam. Yeah. When he was with El Hedi Ben Salam, that he had kids, mm-hmm. and then Fassbinder was like, Let's raise these kids. God, it's such and a terrible story. A horrible story. And yeah. they brought the kids over. And yeah. like Fassbender seemed to be like, let's make a family. I can do this now. And he couldn't. Yeah. And clearly El Hadi Ben Salam had issues yeah. and was violent. Mm-hmm. Fassbender had drug issues. Mm-hmm. And this was no environment for kids. But you see this, this tension in him of like, no, let's, I, I, I want to have a family. Let's, and there's that crazy story with Irm Herman mm-hmm. where she finally broke loose from him mm-hmm. and got pregnant by another man. Yeah. And then he was like, I'll marry you I'll and raise the kid. The kid yeah. Would no, you? thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing okay on my own, thank you. <laughs> Although she did call the kid Franz after Fassbinder uh, saying that she should call the son Franz. Really? That's Bieberkopf, I guess. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah, the wreckage. Yeah, the wreck, and it is wreckage, kind of through his life, kind of the people around him, just um, uh, astonishing, really. And I think didn't Kurt Raab get, um, who was an actor for him and, and a production designer on many of the films, and who this is the other thing about these people is like they stayed around for a really long time, given what he was like to them. Kurt Raab and and Ilm Hellman particularly is just like how on earth did they put up with this? Um, but I think Kurt Rob got excommunicated at a certain point for pointing out that, you know, uh, anyone who gets in a relationship with Fassbinder essentially ends up in the graveyard, you know. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, said at the wrong time as well. Um, but After Armin's death. Yeah. I think, actually, it reminds me of something that um, uh, there's... I was thinking, I've, you know, I've been looking at uh, people who have written about Fassbinder kind of over the years and the people that do it very well, and... Um, I want to... Uh, you reminded me of something that um, Dave... I, I, I think it's Kerr. K-E-H-R, Kerr, maybe. Very brilliant writer and, uh, and writes about Fassbinder particularly. Uh, well, um, that there was something... You know, he's basically talking about how... I mean, he makes a claim that I don't exactly agree with. Um, you know, that he is basically saying um, that he was a master filmmaker who made no masterpieces. Um, and that hmm. even in the greatest films, there's something kind of missing. And not meaning this as a, a, as a, a terribly cr- kind of critical thing, but he says um, that, and I'm reading directly from his review of Lolo in 1982, um, that Fassbender's films are a repudiation of the idea of the final, the definitive, the all-embracing. He thrives instead on the provisional the exploratory and the disposable, and basically talking about, you know, just that sheer, the pace of the work um, uh, lent itself to that as, a, as an approach. But you feel it in the films themselves. He's constantly kind of working out these issues from film to film, and you feel like something happens in his life, he just puts it in the next film, and he's working it out in a messy way in the film as a way, almost as a means of trying to kind of figure out his life you know what i mean i can't think i can't think of filmmakers many other filmmakers who do something like that i suppose it's cassavetes maybe but this is a great point that that i want to get to i mean we're getting at something uh and i don't know how to explain this maybe maybe it'll make sense to you but um i love bob fossey Mm -hmm. and i love all that jazz and i think all that jazz is a masterpiece for a whole bunch of reasons but i do see fossey idealizing Fosse a little bit in oh, that. Sure. You know, he's, he's idealizing, you know, he, he, he seems, he does this very American thing where he still has to tell you how many women he slept with. Yeah, sure. And just like, he does that catty thing where the John Lithgow character is clearly a Michael Bennett mm-hmm. and, it, you know, and the second tier director and, and you're, and Woody Allen does the same thing oh, God, where yeah. Woody Allen idealizes his behavior and rationalizes yeah. his behavior. And you see it in the movies. Um, and I'm, and, and, and I've said this before, I, I like Woody Allen's mm-hmm. cinema, um, and uh, but as I get older, I can see him rationalizing his behavior. Yeah. I can, and and I think that a lot of filmmakers, um, even Fellini, who I love, 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 um, even Bergman, mm-hmm. who I love, 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 uh, but there are these only a handful, and I think Renoir, who's almost a saint, mm-hmm. and Fassbender, who's a flawed saint. Mm-hmm they somehow are looking at it in 360 degrees mm-hmm. 
and they're they're not rationalizing. They're 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 putting themselves through the gamut. Renoir, I think, in a more magnanimous way. Oh yeah. Um, but you'd still, but nevertheless, you can't see a Renoir movie without being like he's looking at this thing from 360 degrees. Yeah, I think I was thinking about Renoir in relation to Fassbender actually because the um, just because of. Uh, just the differences in approach in terms of, you know, you feel like Renoir starts from a point of generosity yes. in a way that Fassbinder does not. Um, or Fassbinder maybe starts from a point of frustration. He, oh, 100%, yeah, of real frustration and, 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 and wanting to kind of, you know, I suppose kind of unveil the kind of lies and hypocrisy that kind of uh, contaminate the world. But but moving in a direction towards that, you know, the kind of grace that we talked about earlier, you know. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I do think that they're, it's not, I wouldn't say that they're kind of similar filmmakers, but it's a... Um, but they are in a rare tier. Yeah. I would put them in the same yeah, rare tier. I do, and, and that's the thing, I think also, but and also with Renoir, I think that that sheer, the sheer kind of giddy... Um, kind of vividness and uh, kind of brio of those films tends to um, people tend to uh, overlook the fact that they are often highly critical films as well you know um, and they both seem just to ride this they both also had and I just don't think and I know I want you to dispute this I just don't think many other filmmakers even when they engage with class did it successfully mm. they both kept pointing out Renoir and Fassbender the, that the real tension and power dynamics in the world is a question of class, oh, yeah, sure. not of race, yep. not of sexuality. Yep. It's of class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Grand Illusion being one of the greatest examples yeah, of that, yeah. or Rules of the Game, yep. or even Tony. Yep. Um, and uh, in Fassbender, Fox and his friends, oh, yeah. you're, you're looking at this gay community, and as you were saying earlier, this is a time when everyone was saying, Rainer, how can you air our dirty laundry? You've got to be portraying us positively. we got yeah, enough, sure. you know... Yeah. Troubles without you airing her, but he was still pointing out. But a relationship between an upper middle class and a working class gay man is still going to end up with the exploitation of the working class gay man yeah, yeah. at the hands of the upper middle class yeah. man who's going to choose his class and his economic standing over this man he's ostensibly in a relationship with, yeah, which is pretty effing damning. Yeah, yeah, great. And I think that Renoir was getting at the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, there's that, but that that's a brilliance that. You know, there are other filmmakers, and I'm not going to name-check them because I don't want to speak negatively about them, and you may, you may totally come at me and be like, I disagree with you. <laughs> but I think there are other filmmakers that we put up on a pedestal who deal with class who don't deal with it with near the sophistication oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the understanding that those two do. Yeah, I just think Fassbinder, in, in that respect, Fassbinder really kind of gets to the roots of it as well and, and does it very, very bluntly as well. Um, I feel like the uh, it's... You know those things are front and center in a way that um, are in a way that is unusual. You know, and I can't think of I just can't think of many filmmakers who um, who talk about those issues, not just talk about those issues, but talk about those issues in the way that he does, and that kind of all in that incredibly restless way. You know, but an issue that I've always had, and I think I've told you this, is uh, my mom's side of the family is Republican. My dad's side of the family was ragingly liberal. And it was interesting, too. My dad's side of the family, liberal Jews, secular Jews, liberal, secular Jews. My mom's side of the family, um, business, conservative, Midwestern, Irish Catholics Mm -hmm. and Italian Catholics. I could see people, when they get ideological, get blinded. 
Um, truth is a very messy thing. Truth is a very, I mean, I don't, and I believe in it. I, well, I think, but I think he recognized that he was, uh, he talked about this in relation to Theodore Fontana, who wrote Effie Briest, and Fassbinder made a film about, talking about how Fontana wanted, and Fassbinder, him, by extension, talking about himself, um, how he wanted to be able to be critical of a society that he saw as full of hypocrisy and lies, while at the same time craving the respect of that society and and recognizing that those things, you know, that in order to do what he wanted to do, he also had to be a part of the society and, and had to be kind of inside it. I mean, he always talked about how American cinema was really the only cinema he took seriously because it wanted an audience mm. um, and that... Um, uh, and that it was hugely important to him to have an, a, a broader audience in, in, t- in terms of being able to talk about this stuff. And now, of course, I find myself thinking, oh, it's a bit rich for the, <laughs> for the filmmaker who made Satan's Brew and <laughs> Why Does Hair Air Run Amok? But like, why aren't the audiences coming to these things? <laughs> <laughs> who knows, Reiner? Um, but, um, but that was definitely... You know, and and actually, um, Berlin Alexanderplatz when it was first um, screened, um, was pilloried, right? Yeah, but also was VDR that it uh, the network that it showed on. It was supposed to show at the kind of family hour in the evening, but then when they saw it, they're like, nope, and <laughs> and, and put it on late at night, and that was a source of great bitterness to him, um, because again, you know, he wanted to kind of he wanted to communicate uh, as widely as possible. That said, he also did not tolerate. Um, really kind of attacks from any side and it was you know he he i think people when he was criticized about being kind of too indulgent towards right wing characters in his films um you know he's like look the reactionaries know what i think of them it's like i don't need to you know i don't need to kind of lay it on thick in the films it's just like uh, whereas but that's a sign of genius to me because you know it, i guess what i'm trying to get at is if it was so obvious yeah. that the national socialists were going to ruin Germany, mm-hmm. they never would have risen to power. Yeah, sure. And and I think um, Mother Custis' trip to heaven is um, was had the distinction of being banned from the um, from the Berlin Film Festival the year it was released, and also from the for- Berlin um, the Forum, which was like the side festival uh, for the Berlin because it was it was deemed too incendiary, um, be- precisely because it was going against uh, the communists and um and i guess there was a press conference where someone angrily uh confronted him and saying that he was that the film made all leftists look like idiots to which he responded by shouting all leftists are idiots you know he wasn't he wasn't conciliatory about these things um and um but do you i just for a minute because you're getting at the heart of something there so you told me that story before and i i nearly leapt out of my skin when you told me that story because I find myself believing in democracy mm-hmm. and a diverse society mm-hmm. and these beliefs that have come up in the last 100 or 200 years that I think are very, very fragile and the market of, of being able to say whatever, mm-hmm. of, of you should be able to artistically, as long as it's not physically hurting, you should be able to explore any topic. Sure. You should be able to debate. We should have a, a de- market of free ideas. We should have democracy, as messy as it is. We should have a pluralistic society, a diverse society. Um, and we should vouchsafe these ideals, and these ideals need to be vouchsafe. But the way that the left goes about it, 
makes me want to run my head into a wall. Sure. And I'm like, you, you're never going to achieve what you ostensibly say that you're trying to achieve because you are anybody who is amenable to maybe joining the cause mm-hmm. is going to be turned off by the fact in lecturing them like you're a professor who knows better and what's best for them and their family. And yeah. the tone of your voice is going to turn off every single vote that you need. Yeah, I mean, he, as a filmmaker, he was very plainly someone who has no patience with that uh, at all. And, and, you know, where there are kind of repositories of sympathy in the films, I feel like it's, uh, it, you know, it's Emmy in Fear Eats the Soul, it's, well, and, and Brigitte Mira playing both of them, Mother Custers as well, that, there is a, that there's a basic sympathy with uh, working-class people in the films that it's the closest he comes to, uh, you know... Um, to having something like warm kind of... Uh, or a kind moral of effect, center. Effect, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. A moral center. Yeah, yeah. precisely. And, but what's, what's, what you're saying there with both those Brigitte Mara characters, too, is they're very tolerant. Yep. They're bo- and they're not judgmental. Yeah, quite. And they're not ideological. Oh, no, I think in terms of, like, the being able to say anything and, and you, you know, having the freedom to say these things, I mean, that was, you know, many of his films are co-financed by um, German television um, and y- you know and that and, and there were things that they didn't want in Berlin Alexanderplatz that he made a concession about that then kind of regretted taking a, a one scene out but um, you know he talked about with In a Year with 13 Moons and Third Generation those are films he financed himself shot himself as well um, and the Year with 13 Moons he did didn't he do the production design and edited, edited you know did it all um, and that they, you know, as such, those two films are kind of important kind of steps forward for him in terms of being able... Because he was quite clear about it. He was like, I'm not going to be able to say these things on... You know, if these things are being co-financed by right. television, you know, particularly third generation, you made at a time that is, uh, you know, incredibly um, uh, nervy in West Germany at that time, you know, the um, Red Army faction and... Um, the successive generations of um, those militants uh, doing what they did. It was a very hard time for him, for someone like him to be able to talk about stuff like that. And you see that in Germany in autumn as well, The that se- segment of, of his. One of my favorite things. Oh, my God, did. it's un- unbelievable. And so, um, God, so raw. Uh, just like that is an astounding thing. But in, in terms of his you know, attitude towards democracy, that, that film's key, of course, the... That table conversation. Well, yeah, but him, you know, that or his treatment of armor. Yeah, and the background on that is, you know, at that time, Red Army faction, uh, first generation, Ulrike Meinhof, Andreas Bader, Gudrun Enslin, uh, in prison, had been in prison for some time for a series of um, um, kind of arson attacks and uh, um, other kind of planned targeted attacks in the early seventies, but that had then metamorphosed into something um, that Fassbinder, if he had some sympathy for, you know, the Bader-Meinhof days, um, although not agreeing with the tactics, but some, you know, saying that under the historical circumstances, he really, he was just like, of course something like this was going to happen. Um, uh, It's hardly a surprise that it did. But by 77, you know, where they're kidnapping industrialists, hijacking uh you know 747s in Mogadishu you know um that the uh you know that conversation at the kitchen dinner table about you know his mother and Armin saying you know they should just shoot the prisoners um and uh and 
for every hostage that's killed on the 747, they should shoot. Right. They should shoot one of these. Him, his point being a, a very simple one, um, which is that um, that actually a test of a democracy is precisely a crisis like that. Absolutely. Um, and that um, it's not much of a democracy if you're the first thing you reach for is to put the people you don't like up against the wall and shoot them. And that, you know, for him, you know, at that time, that's, you know, there's a direct line between that, between the fascist past and the suppression of the fascist past in Germany and the way in which those things bubble up at a time of um, crisis in democracy. So again, for our audience, for background, Germany in Autumn was an omnibus film, and Fassbender's segment is the first one dealing with these, um, you know, some would call them far left, others would call them terrorist organizations of the 70s, who felt that the only way to affect change in society was to perform these really disruptive acts of kidnapping or murder or terrorism or what have you. And just just to your point, and, and then what happened was that Germany then instituted all of these very restrictive laws, mm, West Germany, um, stripping um, sort of free speech, stripping um, sort of democratic procedures yeah, of trial right, so. for order. Yep. And I think that, that Fassbinder rightfully said this is exactly what happened when Hitler came sure. to power. Yep. And uh, what you're saying is that table conversation with his mom, mm. um, that point he makes where he's like, I mean, this to me is his brilliance, where, where she's like, they're murderers. He's like, yes, they're murderers, but you don't treat them any different than regular murderers. Yeah, yeah. You put them on trial, yeah. you show that we have a rule of law, mm-hmm. and you don't immediately throw out all the laws that institute some kind of pluralistic democracy mm-hmm. for order. Yeah. And, you know, and there's that, again, I can't do it as well as you, and I always feel very frustrated because, I, no, 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 I, I do, I I, I bang my head a little bit because I, I um, and I, I can't get into this. It's a very complicated thing. Um, but my Americanism, which I'm, you know, like him, there's many things that I'm proud of to be an American. Mm. As he, there were many things he was proud to be a German. Sure. But I only feel that you're as good as the strongest argument against your thing or looking at the war. So this touches on something that's quite important to me in terms of Fassbinder and just kind of as an artistic kind of model um, is that I feel like in terms of this kind of engaged, social, socially critical kind of filmmaking, on a fiction level, is just like that people simply do not make films like this anymore, and that we've right. that we've ceded altogether too much ground to documentary uh, in terms of dealing with those issues. Um, you know, the the Germany in autumn, the conversation with his mother um, was edited slightly by him to kind of change what she said. Because I think people look at that as like, oh, it's a documentary. It's like, it wasn't a documentary. It was shot over a period, over a week, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, in his apartment. Um, but it has the kind of, um, the feeling of, of uh, documentary kind of authenticity just because of how kind of raw and how kind of present it is. Um, but... Um, how was it edited? Um, he just took something off the end of one of her comments um, that made it sound like she wanted a, you know, a, what is she says, kind, benevolent, authoritarian leader. She's the best. No, we just screened it. So yeah, she says the best dictator would, be, or the best leader, the best government would be a benign, authoritarian yeah. dictator who made the right decision. Yeah, and she said, I believe she said something after that about, you know, oh, within a democratic system, of course. But she said subsequently. That, it, that he had taken that out, but she, 
as soon as he took it out, she realized that that absolutely was what she meant and that that's what she was talking about, you know. Uh Um, And so this idea of getting to truth through essentially kind of fictional kind of means, you know. Um, But I just think that, you know, in terms of his... um, I just think it's a, a real loss, to be honest with you, that there aren't people making films like this. I think on the website you had... Uh, in your thing about him as a filmmaker of the year, I think you mentioned Francesco Rosi in in oh sure Salvatore Giuliani. Yeah, and I just think you know he's another filmmaker. Just like people simply do not make films like this anymore. Um, they don't, um, or, or not that they don't make film. Well, no, they don't make films like this anymore. But in in terms of, but in fairness, I don't a, know if you're talking about Salvatore Giuliano, which is another one of my top thirty five. Sure, that movie's kind of sui generis. I don't know any other movie like that. Oh, movie. well, yeah, but but then Lucky Luciano and uh-huh. Illustrious Corpses. You know, these are he's, he's he made a lot of films like that. Um, and I just think as a body of work, or, or, or as an overarching kind of artistic mission, it's just like. I just struggle to think of like anyone who's even trying to do anything remotely like that, you know. Because I think, oh God, who would, you know? Imagine if you'd had a fassbinder around in America in two thousand one, <laughs> two thousand two. God, yeah. can you imagine? I know plenty of people in my life who've seen fassbinder films, just like I hate them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Hell and, no. and they're hard to. They're incredibly thorny, spiky kind of. Um, Films that that refuse an easy um, uh, refuse kind of easy accommodation with what they're saying. You know, they're they're frequently very um, confrontational. God, yeah, that's. And, I mean, and the the, yeah. the the but consistently. Yeah, but, but that was the thing. I I think I've had a, a conversation or two with other people um, that watching them, they're not. They're not like, this will be a weird whatever, but it's not Ferris Bueller's Day Off, mm-hmm. which I love. Sure. With, you know, you put that on and everyone feels great. Mm-hmm. You put on Jaws or you put on Godfather, even though Godfather's dealing with fascinating themes and yeah, Shakespearean. Yeah. Those are pictures that, and this is what cinema is about. You and I have had this conversation and, and I think you and I both love this kind of cinema as well. There's a cinema of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And if you're just in the cinema of enjoyment camp, then Fassbender's probably not for you. But there is a cinema of ideas mm-hmm. and a cinema of confrontation and a cinema that that is vital and important if you believe in engagement, if you believe as I if you believe that you should get involved, if you believe that it's the process and the fight. Um, and that's Fassbender. And that to me is almost like a cry a little bit, but that's that's a blistering optimism. Yeah, I, do, I, I think that... To make that kind of cinema. I, I wouldn't say so much that it's um, cinema of enjoyment that, or in terms of how he kind of identifies these things. I think it's, it's more an idea of cinema as catharsis, yes. which, uh, right, which yeah, Hollywood, yeah. you know, the, the kind of Hollywood model kind of gives you. you. You go through these emotions, but by the end of the experience of watching the film, everything's been wrapped up. You can walk out into the world feel good about the you know what you've just been through but don't worry you've left it behind in the theater um first minute doesn't do that and does very consciously kind of refusing an idea of catharsis at the end of these things i think of like in a year with 13 moons just kind of how completely unassimilable that film is just like um you're not um it's so intensely personal and so close up 
intense to to a point of feeling like a like a dream state at various it's a fugue movie yeah that um that you can't just walk out of that and be like <laughs> be like okay well let's go and have dinner somewhere <laughs> um you know and and but i think that that's true for you know so many of those films uh, well for all of the films that you know he just conscious consciously refuses that he always said that but but his movies are like if you and i they're the kind of movies where you and i would go and talk about them yeah but i think he always said that he wanted to make films that are every bit as beautiful as american films but not as hypocritical Mm. was what he said you know it's just you know that there is and so that's why i would say that's why i would say you know the cinema of enjoyment it's not like there are not things to enjoy they're not austere well they're not really austere films. I think even no, they are enjoyable. Yeah, from a cinematic level. And sure. Yeah. yeah, I didn't mean to maybe be so no, no, um, no. Um, uh, binary. Sure. But I, I, I just meant that that w- a fastbender movie. It's funny you said catharsis because I misunderstood you. When you talk about cinema of catharsis, American style, yeah. it's. It's not catharsis to me because you as the audience member aren't having the catharsis. You've sure. seen someone else have the catharsis. Sure. I thought you meant that the cinema of Fassbender has the potential for you as an audience member to have a catharsis. Well, that's, he flips it, essentially. Yeah. He's, and that's, uh, you know, it, it's possible I'm repeating myself, but, the, you know, he always said that he felt that the... Um, the it was in, it was not important to him whether the characters change. It was important whether the audience changes. And by presenting these you know negative outcomes of things think of the end of fox and his friends for god's sake oh. like, i know they pick his pocket <laughs> i mean they don't just they don't just leave him there they pick his pocket um i just think um you know that he's like okay well what are you going to do about this yeah, no, right, yeah. um the you know the, it's not um it's not tying it up for you in a way that you can just kind of... Forget. But he's also not offering you a, a solution. No, not at all. This, this is the other thing. I think the no. problem with engaged filmmaking um, is that filmmakers, like you were telling that story about the left, where he yelled at the journalist or whatever. Yeah, sure. I, don't, I don't think that cinema is about, here's the answer. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what cinema is. I, in fact, I think that's ridiculously presumptuous mm-hmm. of a filmmaker to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think if, 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 but I think cinema can say, "I'm frustrated by these things. Mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with these things. I want you to be a part of this dialogue, mm-hmm. and maybe we can figure something out." That's that. That to me feels like what cinema can do beautifully. And yeah. he, he, like you said, you finish with a Fassbender movie, and you're like. I think I got to wrestle with this. Yeah, I think I was thinking about you know famously he was um, he he mid not midway through his career but relatively early in his career he um, encountered encountered he watched the films of um, Douglas Sirk and had a kind of uh, an artistic epiphany in terms of you know a way forward where he could um, make these uh, films that were kind of very bitterly critical of West German society but also how you reach an audience. I think the Cirque films, you know, the Cirque films are so, you know, superficially so beautiful and uh, they kind of slip down relatively easily uh, in in so many ways um, that, um, you know, I know some critics think of those films as being a bit kind of cynical in the sense that they are, they, they want to have their cake and eat it. They want to be critical at the same time that they want, uh, they want to, or they want you to enjoy it, but all at the same time have this kind of ironic, kind of critical distance from it, um, and you know, in, in a way that um, 
some people have argued, you know, why don't they just kind of commit more? Mm. And I think the Fassbender films just don't... <laughs> they don't... I just feel they do not slip down very easily in, the, in quite the same way. You know, he may have been... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, influenced by Cirque, but I feel like Fassbender made his own version of that. You know, it's not right. That's why he's not an imitator. Yeah, quite. And a fa- um, there's nothing like a Fassbender movie. Yeah, I just th- I was thinking about humor in the films and just like kind of how much, you know, how many moments there are of like where humor is like absolutely laced with cruelty and kind of sarcasm. You know, and that uh, and I think of that awful moment in Beware of a Holy Hall when you know it's coming when he. Uh, walks when Lou Castell as a director walks up to who is presumably Elm Hellman at the at the thing and just slaps her clean in the face, knocks her down, and it's kind of hilarious. Um, certainly the way in which it is staged, um, and I think that there's not there's, you, you, there aren't really kind of any um, what's outlets within the films for that kind you know for a kind of knockabout kind of fun thing that people look for. Pauline Kael, I think, like, famously was like, I, I think she re- reviewed Merchant Four Seasons was just like, no. Huh. <laughs> like, just couldn't deal with the fact that it wasn't much fun. That, that, not- that scene from Beware of a Holy Horror, which is one of my favorite films of his, um, yeah. it's in my top five, yeah. uh, is... We need to talk about favorites. Let's do it. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm one day. We're gonna bring it. Bring it home in a moment. Thank <laughs> sure. you. Uh, but this has been this has been wonderful, yeah. and we've gotten it. Uh, but like what you just said there is, but but this is. I don't want to get. I don't want to get too nerdy here. Uh, but I hope this. So, um. You know, Wittgenstein, who's my favorite philosopher, spent his whole life dealing with the vagaries of language, sure. right? And and when we say this. What do we really mean? And let's be aware that there are, when we say game, game can mean 20 things mm-hmm. to 20 different people. You know, are we talking about a mind game, which has a negative? Are we talking about a sports game? Are we talking about a game we play with our kids? Mm-hmm. Warm, and, what, and so that means that the word game has this multitudes. Laughter as a reaction, that scene in Beware of a Holy Horror, which, which we should say, it's, it's a static shot, mm. and it begins with, I think, Hannah Scheigula just dancing, sure. and they're out on this patio overlooking an ocean, and he's shouting at his gay lover, and he's like, I'm going to Rome, and he's like, no, you're not going to Rome, I'm going to Rome, and you just see how ridiculous these young people are and how self-obsessed, absorbed, and then the Erm Herman character comes on with the guy, he slaps her, and then a dude comes and punches him in the <laughs> stomach, and the, the thing is, you laugh because it's so funny, mm-hmm. But you also laugh because you get it. It's a laughter of recognition. A laughter can... There, I, I weirdly enjoy mm-hmm. a dark gut laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's forcing me. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, holy... Yeah. Ah! Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that what you're saying, that, that people maybe can grace over, I find his movies hilarious. Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. I feel like the... Um... God, watch it. I watched, I watched uh, Mother Custer's is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> frequently. I remember watching um, uh, watching Pedro von Kant in the last couple of weeks, and I think I'd just forgotten that when uh, you know after Karen has left and um, uh, and her daughter comes to visit, uh, you just hear it from off screen. Her daughter knocking at the door. She opens the door. It's like, 
Ähm, äh, Mutti, alles Gutes zum Geburtstag. M äh, Mami, happy birthday. And it's like, oh no, it's her birthday. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, oh my God. And then her screaming at Marlena about, den Kuchen, bring me the cake. You know, these things are absolutely hilarious because they're pushed to extremes as well. That's, you know, that extreme stylization in so many of the films. Um, that was his whole thing, of course, you know, making films in the way that he made theatre and making theatre in the way that he wanted to make films, you know, the extreme stylization and and turning these things into um, these kind of dream states, you know. Well, so let's... We could be here for five hours. We're, we're, we're going to have to do, like, a catch, <laughs> catching up with Fassbender. But, yeah, but sure. the, the, the... Just as a side note, because we can't even get into this, I, I think... I've come to this realization because I'm still determined to make features. That yeah. that has actually not abated in me yeah. at all. Um, but I've come to this this realization that many of the greatest filmmakers were uh, came up in theater, and uh, you know I'm sure there are a lot of theater directors that sure. I'm not huge on that yeah. are also in film. But I mean, uh, just to name check a few: Orson Welles, Igmar Bergman, Rainer Werner Fassbender, mm. F. W. Murnau, mm. Sergei Eisenstein. Mm. And what I think is their understanding of solutions in theater allowed them to come up with solutions in cinema oh, yeah. that cinema-trained people don't have. Mm. So whenever I watch like Berlin Alexanderplatz, there are so many beautiful wonders, mm. and he's creating dynamism in, in staging. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is almost like a play, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. It's cinema. Because I've also seen theater directors where it feels like a, a film play. Yeah. But I'm like, he was able to do so much and make so many movies because he could knock out eight pages yeah. by telling his actors, hey, People in theater can do eight pages, so yeah. memorize it. Here's where it is. Hit your marks, and we, we can shoot this movie in 12 days. Yeah, I just think it's so good with the camera, and obviously he was helped by you know great um, cinematographers. But, but I think, yeah, what's extremely important to understand, I think, about that um, the incredible rapid pace that he was able to maintain was precisely that experience in the theater and being able to get things out of actors very, very quickly. Um, mm. He also didn't shoot many takes of things. He would, That's the you only know, way. like famously, yeah. would uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz was mainly like one, maybe two takes if something technically went wrong. And watching those things and thinking these things would, these performances were done in one take, I find absolutely astonishing. Um, but I think um, you know he also that repertory company. You know, to be fair to them, as maligned as they were by him through his career. Um, kind of accomplished what he did. They knew they knew what he wanted, and they were able to cater to his every whim. So they were able to move very quickly. Um, uh, you know, just think about yes, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's it's hard for him to make that many films, but it's also very hard for the actors and <laughs> Kurt Rob to do. The, you know what I mean? Oh, it's yeah. an unbelievable pace. Michael Ballhouse for the whole company, yeah, for the whole company to kind of keep up. And um, so I think that's really a kind of integral um, part of that people kind of. The team uh, kind of overlook a little. Yeah, he had an incredible team, um, but also fiercely disciplined on set. You know, um, and he demanded that discipline of them. But I think it is also the discipline of people who've worked in theatre who know yeah. that you've got to show up and you've got to deliver quickly. You know, um, uh, what's the name? Uh, Shigula Hannah Shigula talks about. You know, on Bitters Petrol and Camp with Margaret Margaret Carstensen. Like she showed up. And she felt like she was in a dream state for the whole, for like in a trance for the whole making of the film because um, it just moved so quickly, you know, that Carstensen showed up with these monologues down absolutely cold hmm. that they could just, you know. And so that's the thing. It's just like, um, 
for all the chaos kind of around him on set, by all accounts, just like laser beam focused, knew what he wanted. And yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't make that number of films in that period of time without knowing what you wanted. You know? So Fassbender um, was very openly bisexual. Sure. And uh, although it, it strikes me, and I, I, I could be wrong, it strikes me that his most intense relationships were with men, mm. um, most famously Armin Meyer, who committed suicide, and we'll talk about in a year of 13 moons in a moment, which he made as a direct result of Armin's suicide. Um, he was married to Ingrid Coven and uh, spent the last three years of his life in a relationship with his uh, editor, Julian Laurence, who then carried the flame to this day with the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Fassbender Foundation. Foundation yeah. So he was, he was a bisexual man. His movies always have struck me, even to this day, as being light years ahead of their time in the representation of LGBTQ issues because he grants everybody their full humanity. It doesn't seem like a stretch to me that someone who was as kind of open, truly open to um, the very extremes of kind of human experience would, um, would also be someone who is open to the you know, to a wide kind of spectrum of kind of sexuality as well. Right. I think also right, yeah, yeah. there's right. also something I think necessarily in you know if you're um, you know if you're if you are you know if you're gay or you're feeling um, uh, that you don't kind of conform sexually that you are that you I think necessarily you start to question the kind of givens of kind of conventional society, the things that are simply assumed to be natural, marriage, a big one for Fassbinder, despised that as an institution, you know, thought that it was the kind of source of so many evils in society. Um, that that is very much, yeah, I think absolutely informed by, um, by his sexuality in terms of uh, being both on the inside and the outside, you know, he talked constantly about how he wanted to be able to be critical of society while at the same time wanting to be part of and a respected part of that society. Um, but I think that the gay, you know, there's, you know, the other kind of gay aspects of the theatricality of the, um, you know, many of the films, the, you know, the kind of gestures towards camp and parody, you know, that feel very much kind of part of a kind of gay artistic tradition. Um, those kind of seem obvious, but I feel like, yeah, that, yeah, I just feel like that the kind of fluidity of his um, intellectual approach finds its kind of echo in the fluidity of the sexuality. <laughs> stretch of this conversation um you were talking about let's talk about favorite fastbenders and i think that's great because you and i all just rat-a-tat-tat what are what are your favorite fastbenders i mean for me bitter tears pleasure one kind is the thing which feels i feel like i you know need to come up with something more kind of like a deeper cut but um but i just think it's just perfect and for me it's like top five films just the greatest seeing the criterion um kind of restoration um, was like, not like watching a new film, it's just like, oh my God, it's just in terms of the, the just the sheer kind of beauty of the, uh, the of the cinematography, just um, uh, really, for me this time, just kind of emphasised just there's so much, there's tenderness in that film and there's a lot of cruelty and a lot of very kind of um, 
sharp, nasty kind of uh, exchanges of insults and blows between the characters. But um, there's just like just the kind of um, the just the beauty of the of the kind of restoration was just like oh god, it made me feel the film kind of a hundred times all over again, you know. Um, but I think for me that's just conceptually and execution-wise, just like that is. Uh, it just does everything I need in a film. <laughs> um, that, I would say, um, from the early films, Katzelmacher, I just think, again, you know, so many of those films, the, the early films, you can feel him kind of exploring his way through and trying to, you know, make things and that work. Um, uh, but that one, again, it's just like it's the conceptually so strong and just... Um, just the control of the tone and the control of that uh, performances um, on such kind of meager means, because I, you know, look at that as a kind of cinema of poverty. You know, it's just like how the, they shot it on thirty-five, though I believe. Hmm. Um, the uh, and yet, you know, there's nothing. Um, you know, it's them against largely blank white walls, isn't it? Which, of course, is a, a choice, a, a creative choice as well. Um, I really love, I say love, but he described it as the most disgusting film he ever made, uh, Why Does Hair Air Run Amok, um, which I rewatched again uh, recently. Um, that is a... Oh, my God. But I think, you know, we talked about Catholic ideas of suffering and that, um, in terms of that film, I don't think, you know, kind of running motif through the films like death as a kind of deliverance, you know, that death is a release at the end of that film. You're like, oh, actually, it's kind of a form of liberation, I suppose, to hang yourself in the toilets at work, you know. Um, uh, but just in terms of the just the sheer kind of acuteness of the the kind of observation of that kind of petty bourgeois kind of uh, environment, just you were talking painful. earlier too, because I find that movie hilarious. Oh God, yeah, but, it, but I think it is partly a comedy, you know. Oh, that's and it's hard for me to explain to people. Uh, that's that's another one of my favorites of his. Yeah. Um, there's the scene when they're in the snow <laughs> and their kid, kid runs, runs off. off and then it's all like a wonder and the mom is laying into his wife oh, yeah. and he's oh, just God, there that talking. Mother. I just think that that as a, as, as a distillation of so many of the things that he did, you know, it's just like, it's, that's, uh, it's, I just feel like it's a representative work, I suppose. Um, in the same way as I feel Mother Custer's Trip to Heaven, same about that. It's just like, it distills so much of what, um, he was trying to do so well, and then in the year with thirteen moons, which I just think um, is the kind of um, I just it just flashed into my mind. It's like it's like his persona, you know, mm-hmm. just so a, a kind of you know as as uncompromising as some of the work is before that. Just that it feels like a stylistic break in a way um, that. Uh, there's but so, an elevation. Oh my god, completely! And there's so much going on in it. Because ironically, and I, I mean this as no knock, because I love the the BDR trilogy. Yeah. But the BDR trilogy, no buts. The BDR trilogy is fascinating, and each one is yeah. is is fully fully unique. But at that point, I don't know if he knew he was on the way out, or or like those big projects he was sure. accepting at the end. Mm. Um, but in a year of 13 moons, to me, and I want to keep going and I'll, because I'm going to talk about that or whatever, mm. we'll have a conversation. But you see that middle period 
Petra von Kant, Ollie Fear Eats the Soul, Fox and His Friends, mm-hmm. um, Mother Crusters. And it's, 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 it's brilliant. It's amazing. Um, and you see where he's come from. And then when you see In a Year of 13 Moons, to me, you're like, I didn't know that you could go beyond that. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, like, way beyond it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think. Yeah, I just think that that is, um, uh, yeah, so intense as to be not unbearable. Unbearable makes it sound kind of um, unpleasant, but there's not... It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's just so... um, there's no distance between, uh, you know, in, I, I feel like in so much of the other, in so many of the other films, that kind of I- idea of kind of ironic, ironic distance, distance yeah. and, you know, allowing people to um, to kind of reflect on these things. In that, it feels like... Um, and I think a lot of times the, 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 the mind-blowing thing to me about the movie is that a lot of times when people make that movie, it's a little too much. It yeah. doesn't have the, sure. the distance yeah. of craft. Yeah, yeah. Whereas an artist, you go, well, but I need to craft the scenes or I need to craft the emotions or I need to craft the drama. It's sometimes, I remember I had a friend in college who, uh, he, had, he was painting paintings after a breakup with uh, his boyfriend and he showed me his painting and it was like of somebody ripping open their chest yeah. and it was a heart yeah. and he said, I call it Mia culpa. Yeah. And I looked at it. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you know, and on one hand, I, listen, I remember I had this one week fling with this woman that I worked with uh, and we, we, we hooked up on Halloween. I was Harry Potter and she was in a white crinoline dress with bleeding eyes and we knew it was going to happen too. Because we'd been talking about it like all week at work. Sure. I was like, are you coming to my party? She's like, I am. Here's what I'm wearing. I'm like, oh, I'm Harry Potter. It was like some kind of weird nerd <laughs> foreplay. <laughs> and and uh, she came and we hooked up and we went out for a week. And I couldn't believe it because I was, I was head over heels for this woman. And, uh, and then I was way too intense. She was getting over a relationship. I think she just wanted to have fun. Sure. And I think a week into it, I was like, I'm feeling really like feelings. And she's like, oh. Okay, you know, it was not what she wanted. And then I remember, so it was just a week. And at the end of that week, and I also remember Bush won a second term that oh, week. God. So it was 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, when we broke up the next week, I was like, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this in any of relationship. I was in my 20s. And I was like, I'm going to write a novel, and I'm going to give her this novel, and I'm going to show her, and I'm going to write it. She'll know. She'll know. I'm going to write it in the next two weeks. It wasn't like a revenge thing, but I was like, I'm going to write the greatest novel ever written, and she's going to see. And then, uh, like, I was literally crazy. Uh, uh, And and then, you know, weeks passed, months passed, and I look back, and I was like, whoa, I'm so glad I didn't write that novel or like, mm. not that I, I mean, maybe I should have, it would have been a novel, but I was, I was like, I was under the heat of something that's very rarely <laughs> happened to me. But my point being that often that's not when no, your greatest yeah, work yeah, comes sure. up, but in a year of 13 moons to me feels like this yeah. work of anguish, his lover Armin commits suicide yeah. and he makes this response and it's the, one of the most brilliant things he ever did. I, I just feel like also the way in which it kind of pivots stylistically, you know, in the, the scene with Anton Seitz and them dancing to the Jerry Lewis and <laughs> Dean Martin thing. Up, so you know what I mean? Like, yeah. This is in this film. Um, uh, yeah, I just, um, yeah, that feel, it, to me that, I think more than any of the others feels like a film from the future, you know what I mean? Um, my favorite Fassbenders are, and I think we have a lot of overlap, are Kotzelmacher, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, <clears throat> Fox and His Friends, Mother Crusters, mm. 
in a year of 13 moons in Berlin, Alexander Platt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those would be, yeah. to me, the... Yeah. Uh, um, but... Uh, I was trying to choose five, but you got greedy. I did. <laughs> yeah, but that's when you know, that's when you know you're in the no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I also want to mention... No, no. <laughs> but, but, but what you... You know, it's funny. When I heard... Um, I'm not the, the biggest Beatles fan, as much as I like the Beatles, sure. but when I heard that album, Revolver, and I heard the two John Lennon songs, sure. She Said, She Said, and Tomorrow Never Knows they still to me feel like songs from the future. Mm. Um, and I'm like, how, how do you write the? And mm. I, I, I endlessly am blown away. And what you just said, for people who haven't seen any year of 13 moons, it follows a transgender woman named Elvira who decides that she wants to try to get back together with this boyfriend who she got her sex change for, um, who spurned her. And you almost in the movie, you don't really know how seriously yeah. the relationship ever was, yeah. you know, cause you're so subjective with her mm-hmm. and she spends the last three or four days of her life trying to make sense of her life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and something that shouldn't work that I remember in the movie, uh, I had like when, whenever I see great art for me or something, I, I, I sort of vibrate a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, the last chapter of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, 100 Years of Solitude, when I read that last chapter of John Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath, um, when I saw Richard Pryor do this comedy set early in his career um, in Greenwich Village, uh, and he ended it with a 10-minute monologue between a junkie and a wino, and <laughs> no one laughed. But, <laughs> but the ball, like, I was watching it, and it was so devastating because mm, sure. the wino is giving advice to the junkie, <laughs> And the wine, I was like, boy, your priorities are all messed up. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> um, but you, I, I start vibrating. Mm-hmm. And, and there's that scene where Ingrid Coven takes Volker Spengler mm-hmm. to a room. And on TV is the Fassbender documentary. Well, there's also the PLR film, Morris PLR's um, We Won't Grow Old Together, which um, you should see if you haven't seen it. It's absolutely coruscating. Um, uh, uh, dissection of a relationship um, in a v- kind of very realist mode and, and Fassbender was a big admirer of that film particularly um, but uh, but yeah it's funny the, thinking about kind of realism and Fassbender and how Fassbender effectively had no use for realism and that, that abstraction and theatricality was very important to him but what you're, what you're talking <coughs> about it's not something from the future uh, do you know the scene I'm talking about where, where he shows himself on TV? Yeah, and the pin, intercut with um, news from Chile and Pinochet talking about shutting down democracy and that you don't need uh, politicians anymore, you just need him, basically. So yeah. that An I, amazing sequence. That's totally incredible. That shouldn't have worked. Yeah, yeah. In the hands of any other director, in my opinion, that would have been wildly indulgent. Yeah, yeah. Wildly indulgent. Yeah. And if they wouldn't have... And I watched that scene, and you were talking... I feel in any year of 13 minutes specifically in Berlin, Alexanderplatz, he goes into some kind of fugue state. Mm, yeah. And Petra does this a little bit yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And you're in... I don't know where you're at. Yeah. But it's a fugue state that I think takes you somewhere to a level. And I, I, I was watching in a year of 13 moons, and, you know, I'm very emotional, and I, I was just, like, weeping, and I was like how is he doing this? Mm. And he's getting at something that is so fundamental to humanity. And, and then he's doing that. And I get that it's not for everybody, but that to me is, is, is a pinnacle of something. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. Given kind of how, um, how blunt he is in so many other films as well, that film feels like 
he's kind of he manages to get into it obliquely in a way that is like that is the mystery of artistic creation it's just like don't know how this works in, <laughs> in any way yeah. you know what i mean in a way that with some of the other things you can see you know, you know the the kind of mechanics of the plot or you know or, or how the story kind of plays out in that it's just like Right. Kind of, in, 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 given that he's a filmmaker, that I feel you don't. I feel like when you think about Fassbender, you you're not necessarily comparing him to other filmmakers. You're comparing whichever film you're looking at to his other films. You know that it's such a kind of hermetic and a coherent kind of body of work mm-hmm. that it doesn't really need. But there's you know, no one you can compare him to. Yeah, but I think even within that, even within that, that film feels like it's that it's singular. So Berlin Alexander Platz, which is too much to talk about, his 15-hour <laughs> adaptation of this 1920s Alfred Doblin modernist novel, um, which which uh, was for him like one of his burning. I've, I've got to do this works, and he got to do it. Yeah. Um, I have I have always been obsessed and fascinated with the epilogue, um, and I think the whole thing. And I and for people who haven't seen it, you may want to skip over this because you may want to experience it. But I I will have to ruin it for us to talk about it or spoil it. <laughs> um, so uh, the first 13 episodes are fascinating, and they're all done in different styles. And there was a scene I had forgotten about, that great scene where he and Reinhold start trading women, mm. and he has uh, Franza, and then he throws her over for Silly, mm. and it plays for like 40 minutes of that episode, all in that, and you're talking like fugue states, and you're like, this sequence is what is going, this is crazy, and there's the Pierre Robin music that's yeah, just like yeah, endless yeah. and yeah. ceaseless, but to me, I was watching it, uh, long story short, watching it, and I was like, this also feels unique in his body of work because oh, his sure. style yeah. Yeah, yeah. for the 13 episodes is in some ways yeah. very reserved yeah. compared to what you've seen. Yeah, yeah, very much. But then I was, I, 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 made, I, I sensed it very much. I was like, it had to be for those last two hours to work. Mm-hmm. The discipline, mm-hmm. because for people who don't know, you see this story... And then it's, you get to what you think is an epilogue, which yeah. I think is a laugh unto itself because it's still telling the story. Yeah, sure. And suddenly this movie that was very disciplined, very time-specific, very 1928, um, suddenly Franz Bieberkopf, his, his second, one, second love of his life in a way, Mitza, played amazingly by Barbara Sokoa. So good. Uh, so good. Yeah. Um, gets killed by Reinhold um, uh, out in the woods. That sequence as well. One of the brilliant, yeah, one of the best things he ever did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Franz, when he finds, when Bieberkopf finds out what's really happened, has basically a psychotic break. And and the novel and the movie does this great thing where they're like, at the end of episode 13, they're like, it's the end of his story. There's really nothing after this. This is the end of Franz Bieberkopf mm. and his struggle to like become a good person or mm. whatever, engage with existence. This is where it ends. And then you're like, oh, there's an epilogue. <laughs> In the first frame as well. You're like, what is happening? Uh, <laughs> it's this hour and 50 minute. He's ostent. Well, you know this. He goes to an asylum uh, because uh, he gets tried for Mitza's uh, uh, murder, but it's down. He's not guilty. They know that Reinhold's murdered, but he's had a psychotic break. So the last hour and 45 minutes are essentially his psychotic break. You're in his head for his psychosis. But then he's playing Janice Joplin and Leonard Cohen. 
They're like scenes of orgies. There's a crucifixion and an atom bomb. And all the characters that you've seen for 13 hours recur. Mm-hmm. Margie Karstensen, and I don't know the name of the other actor, yeah, actually, um, play angels. It's so it's almost like It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> and, and Bieber Kauf is, is, is somehow moving between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing with death and the afterworld and the transcendent and fascism and Germany. And I just, and to me, I always tell people, did you see episode eight of Twin Peaks, The Return? I still haven't seen any of that. Okay. Yeah. So um, Lars von Trier's The Kingdom, The Bergmans, um, uh, Scenes from a Marriage, and Fanny and Alexander, uh, Lynch's Twin Peaks, and Berlin Alexander Platt's I Hold is the greatest things ever made mm-hmm. for television. Mm-hmm. I just want to know your thoughts on the epilogue. <laughs> I mean, it is, like this, yeah, as a kind of phantasmagory, you're just like, what is, <laughs> what is happening here? I think that, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, actually now, having talked about in a year of 13 moons, is kind of singular. It's like that epilogue, of course, is like, oh, <laughs> this wasn't what we thought we were going to get from this. Um, I don't, I mean... I go with it. I know some people kind of like, he has not got control of this. And then some people feel I think like he has not complete control yeah. of it. Um, but who, who thinks that, but I just think as a, um, as a, you know, as a coda to that story as well. And, you know, essentially him kind of leaving behind this, the, the kind of innocent, uh, version of himself who's trying to do good in the world and essentially coming out of it, you know, basically this, kind of Product. shell shell of a man you know going to get the job that he said he never would get you know and essentially being someone who would probably be a nazi, a nazi. in a few years time you know um yeah i just feel like that that it's funny watching that you know i remember thinking you know that there are he liked tarkovsky he was a, he was a big he, he admired Tarkovsky as a filmmaker. And uh, there are moments in that where this kind of scale of just what he's trying to do there is just like, oh, it feels a bit like Tarkovsky, who's a filmmaker. I do not associate with him at all. Um, and, um, yeah, so, I no, for me, I, I, I just think it's... Uh, I just feel like that's... Um, you know, given that it's a, a project that he had dreamed about making from the moment he read the book when he was 14, 15. You know, I'm like, oh, this is someone who's giving it everything. You know what I mean? And that Maybe that's what I respond to, too. Because yeah. you're like, even in a career where he was always swinging for the fences, sure. I felt, except for a few, yeah. where you feel like yeah. he's getting through this one. Yeah. Uh, I feel he's he's... I don't know what the term would be. Like, you swing for the fences, and then it's like your bid for eternity or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I watch that, yeah. he's going for it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in terms of the the films that come after that, is what Lola and um, Veronica, Veronica Voss and, and Carell, you know, it's like, it does, it feels it like, like that. spent it. Yeah, and not to say that those films, are, you know, Lola particularly, I'd like, but... Um, uh, yeah, I think he, you know, I find myself wondering if he's like, 
oh, I'm going to die at the end of this, just because of the way in which he made it. I mean, you know, that was shot in 100 and something like 160 days. 150. For, yeah. Did you do the math on it? I talked about this. I mean, it's astonishing in terms of... Um, he w- it was the equivalent of shooting a 90-minute movie every 15 days. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, having worked in TV, it's like I know what TV schedules are like, and uh, it's not like you can't get... Um, something like that kind of done but not you can't get it done well <laughs> um and um the but also the way in which he wrote it you know sleeping uh, he would write for four days straight um and then sleep for a day and then write you know it's just like you can't help but feel looking at that epilogue it's just like did he think he was going to die at the end of this <laughs> You know, and then he just got, and then he just got like three or four free films after that. (laughs) Um, He was like, "Oh, turns out I didn't die. Maybe I'll make these other ones as well." Because it feels a little bit like it's got that that whole project's got the force of a kind of testament. You know. Well, I was going to ask you with the final thoughts. Any, any, anything? It was exactly what you did, but anything you want to? Because this will. If, anyway, what do you want to leave the audience with? What is it that maybe we didn't talk about that I you just, to touch I just on? think as a, as a body of work, it's um, uh, inexhaustible. And, um, and the, the, you know, I haven't looked at some of these films in many years, actually, and, and going back and revisiting them and thinking about him and also reading him as well. Um, he's a very good critic. Those, those articles on Cirque, obviously, but Chabrol and some of his writing on film is like, he was very sharp. Um, and uh, But his own writing about his own films as well, I just think there's um, an unbelievable wealth there. And I think if you're not familiar with the films at all, you know, um, just, I don't know, you've got a whole world ahead of you, you know. I just feel like um, that I think I... You know, when you asked me to talk about this, I was like, oh, is this going to be one of those things where I look back on something that I liked in my 20s and I'm like, uh, uh. maybe I don't have the same kind of passion and enthusiasm for it anymore. And it's not true at all. I just like, it like ignited a spark. I, you, you, uh, listeners can't see it, but I've got like 10 pages of tiny Hand handwritten notes, A4 notes on this because I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, um, no, I just feel like, um, yeah, again, you know, as you say, a cinema of ideas that it just, it's a constantly nourishing body of work. I, I'm, I put this uh, quote to memory, and I'm not going to do it because I think that's pretentious. I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but um, Gertold Lessing, uh, there's a very famous quote by him where he said that uh, it's illusory to think the ideal is possessing the truth. He said, possession makes you uh, passive, indolent, and proud. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, if God were to offer me concealed in his right hand all truth, and in the left hand only the sincere and diligent pursuit of the truth with the proviso that I would always and forever err in the pursuit of it, I would with all humility kneel and ask for the left hand. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that Fassbender was somebody who represented that dynamism of a pursuit of truth. Yeah. And it's the dynamism of the pursuit yeah. of truth that makes him the genius. The yeah, genius. yeah, the dynamism, the restlessness, it's, that's, the, that's what makes him perpetually interesting, I think. Yeah. And uh, so it was, a, it was a joy to talk to you. It was 
was very nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite nervous about it. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. You and I have never had a problem I, talking. No, no, I know. I'm just. It's the, the intervention of the microphone. <laughs> I'm just self-conscious about it, I suppose. But, um, but no, as I said to you, that when you asked me to do it initially, I was, and I've been incredibly busy. Um, I'd love to, but I can't. And then as I started talking to Robin about it, he's like, oh, God, I can't stop thinking and talking about it. And he was like, oh, God, you're talking about Fuzzbinder again. <laughs> so, no. I didn't, you know, I only discovered Fastbinder because of you. So uh, I just, I, you know, that was a huge, a huge moment in my life, in my creative film life. And that's because of you. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to thank you. There we go. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. <laughs>